0: Open your Bibles to Psalm 74, if you would, this morning. Psalm 74. Last week we finished up the book of Philippians, and the next several weeks we're going to be we're going to pick up our biblical hymnals and expositionally sing the Psalms of Christmas. Have you ever, you ever done that? We, we won't be able to cover all of them, but we'll look at the ones that I think will be very helpful for you as you worship Christ this morning season. Speaking of, of hymnals, have you ever just picked one up and started flipping through the pages until you came to a song that, that you knew and then started to sing? I think some of my fondest memories have been with a hymn book, just sitting around uh, with others singing, um, He leadeth me or, or Come Thou Fount. It's also been the, the balm in, in some of my deepest pain. I, I have come into the church alone and just sitting in a pew, reached out and, and opened a hymn book and sang songs of lament or songs of, of victory. And while our musical preferences can vary, we've all been given an inspired songbook in the Bible. And it's placed there for, for, for these purposes. It's God's hymnal. God gave it to His people so that we might have truth expressed in, in song. It, it's filled with refrains for, for every season, songs of lament, uh, uh, ballads of, of history, hymns of victory. Uh, what would it be like to be an Israelite uh, and, and upon entering the, the city uh, of David, arriving at the, the base of the... The rising hill there, knowing that's Mount Moriah, before you started the climb up to the, to the temple, what, what would you sing? Well, you, you'd probably sing the songs of ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. What songs would you sing to your children uh, as they, they grew up uh, to teach them about the faithfulness of, of their God? Or, or the songs that you would sing in the congregation during times of, of remembrance? Well, you, you'd probably sing the wisdom psalms or. Or Psalm 78, which retells the story of of God's faithfulness to to His people. What song would you sing if the enemies of God had invaded Jerusalem, captured all the people, burnt the city to the ground, and the temple that that you ascended to before, singing those songs of ascent... it was destroyed and the, the ornaments of the temple were torn down. And in the place where God's symbols once stood, it was replaced with idols of, of Dagon or, or another god. And the same place that you believe that the Messiah would come and reign. And not only has He not come, but there's no sign of His coming anywhere. And you haven't heard anything from God for years. There, there are no prophets speaking And it seems like God's enemies are being victorious. What song would you sing then? Well, you'd probably sing Psalm 74. And today we're going to look at it. It's a song of longing and it's a song of lament as Israel is waiting. Waiting. Now, I'm sure like me, if I asked you the question... How many of you like to wait? Almost universally, everybody in here would give the, the exact same answer. I mean, I get impatient when there's a delay on my DirecTV clicker. I, I hit it, and it doesn't change the channel. What's wrong with this thing? And, and, and God forbid, getting used to 5G, all of a sudden my Wi-Fi comes up on 3G. I mean, that's like the most horrible thing ever. We as human beings do not like to Wait. But it's one of the most common requirements of our time on earth. We wait on the evening so we can go to bed sometimes. When we get older, we wait on the morning to come sometimes when we're laying there. And we all have to wait on God, which is what this psalm is about. But under some very specific circumstances, it's a song that gives you the idea of the feeling behind the words, O come, O come Emmanuel. We sing about the coming of Christ with with joy because he's already come and we know he's come. But but those songs would have taken on a completely different tone on the front side of the cross, wouldn't they? I mean, Psalm 74 is, is, is a song of waiting, waiting on something to change. Psalm seventy four is also historically significant. I, I mean, I don't think you can preach this psalm without at least making mention of this. There were millions of Jews that sang Psalm seventy four, longing for a different deliverance. Uh, psalm seventy four is etched on a stone memorial for the for the main synagogue in in Munich that was destroyed on November twentieth, nineteen thirty eight, at the the Kristallach Program, which was also called the Uh, The night of broken glass whenever the the Nazis burnt the the main synagogue there to the ground and and started their evil extermination of the the Jews. The center of the memorial for the synagogue is etched with verse 4 of Psalm 74. Your enemies have roared in the midst of your meeting place and they have set up their own symbols or signs for signs. Uh, The Jewish people could then could, could sing this song in the right key. Now before we begin, before we, we launch into a little mini-series on, on songs in, in the Bible, I think it's, it's helpful for me to, to tell you how to approach songs in, in Scripture. Because they're Scripture, but, but they're a specific genre. And one English theologian said that when you approach a scriptural song, a song in the Bible, say verses like an epistle, like Philippians that we've been in, you might think of it as a difference between a biology teacher and, a, and a way, the way a music teacher would, would focus on, on their subject matter. I mean, a, bi- a biology teacher would be like going to an epistle. They, they dissect their subject matter so they can define each part, and then they put it back together to, to explain it. They, the whole's taken apart, and then the details are analyzed, and then there's specific propositions, and things that are given. A music teacher, though, on the other hand, has a different approach. I mean they teach the meaning of the lyrics. I mean you have to understand what you're singing. But they also teach the tune of the of the song. And then they inspire you to sing it. They they lead you to to sing it. I mean you must understand what you're singing for sure, or, or they're just words that you're mouthing and, and and notes. But once you understand what you're singing the aim is to feel what you're, what what you're singing. I mean, think of how inappropriate it, it would be to, to sing a song of grief in an upbeat and silly kind of way, or a, or a song of celebration with, with dour sadness. And then Englishman went on to say, that the threefold task of a psalm teacher is that we get it, we understand what it says, we feel it, and then we want it. We want to sing it from our hearts. And I want to help you do that with Psalm 74. And... In light of Christmas, this song is a song of longing for God to come and restore His people and His temple. It's a, it's a prayer to pray while, while you're waiting for that to happen or waiting on God, God for anything. I mean, what would it have been like longing and waiting for the Messiah to come? What is it like waiting for the Messiah to come again? I want you to understand that. I want you to feel that, and I want you to be able to sing that from, from your heart. Now, if you look at the whole psalm, let me, uh, there, there are actually three stanzas to it. Verses 1 through 11 expresses intense sorrow at, at what the, the songwriter sees. He's looking around, and he sees things, and he expresses intense grief uh, by what he recognizes. And then verses 12 through 17 is another stanza. It's, it's expressing his confident trust, what he believes. And then in verses 18 through 23... He expresses a pleading prayer. It's what he entreats God for. So, what he sees, what he knows, and then what he prays, and we'll call it three stanzas to the song of "How Long, O Lord." We we sing distressed about what we see, verses one through eleven. We we sing consoled by what we know, and then we sing imploring in what we we pray. Let's get the first stanza while waiting on God we we, we sing distressed about what we, we see verses 1 through through 11 and and there's there are numerous appeals he looks around he sees things and he makes appeals to God based on what he sees and the appeals are based on God shepherding his covenant his sanctuary and and then the mockery that the enemies are doing against against God look if you would at verse 1 it's a, it's a mass of of Asaph Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your, your pasture? I mean, we're told the psalm was written by, by Asaph, and, and as you read the psalm, uh, you can immediately tell what, what it's about. It's, it's a lament waiting on God to restore Zion. It's, it's while Israel was exiled by the Babylonians who destroyed the temple in 587, 586 B.C., and you can tell the, uh, that by the description of what the writer sees. I mean, verse 3, God sees the, uh, the, the writer sees God's foes having destroyed the, the sanctuary. Verse 4, God's enemies are in the midst of the meeting place. They used hatchets and, and hammers to hack God's building down, they, they used fire to burn the sanctuary to the ground. In, in verse 6. And they, they boast loudly and defilingly as they, as they do it in verse 7. They've they burnt your sanctuary to the ground. They've defiled your, the dwelling place of, uh, of your name. It's an extending plea, extended plea for God to act, and the writer continually offers God reasons to do so. As he looks around, look at this, look at this. And he starts with these two questions that, that set the tone in a minor key. God, why have you rejected us or, or cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And, and I want you to notice that the emphasis is not on the rejection, but the length of time they've been rejected. Why have you rejected us forever And the reasoning that he offers for the question is because we're your people. Why does your anger smoke against the the sheep of your pasture? We're, We're your people. This is your pasture. This is your land. And the Asaphite is not confused about why the judgment has come. I mean, God already told them that through the prophets. Judgment's coming Babylon invaded as a judgment from God himself because of Israel's unfaithfulness to, to, to the covenant. And he's not questioning that. He's appealing about how long is it going to go on? How long is it going to go last? I mean, it feels like forever that, that this is happening. I mean, it's like saying, I know why we're here, God, but, but will we remain this way forever? I mean, will, will it ever return to the way that it was? I mean, remember, you're the one who chose us. We're your sheep. We're your precious possession. You ever felt that way? You've been unfaithful to God in in some way, and your sin brought consequences, maybe great ones, and you know exactly why you're suffering. It's your own doing. But the distance from the Lord and the devastating effects around you go on so long that you, you cry out, Lord, how long will this last? When will you restore to me the joy of my salvation? Will you reject me forever? Will it ever be the same? And if you felt that way, take heart. You're, you're not the only one. And here's some inspired words that, that you can pray. And as you pray, make your appeal based on God's relationship to you. Look at verse 2. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed uh, to be the the tribe of your inheritance. And this Mount Zion where where you have dwelt. Notice all the personal pronouns. Your congregation, you purchased, you have dwelt. He says, remember your longstanding covenant, Lord, the congregation, your congregation of old. I mean, this goes all the way back to Abraham, Lord, the land of Ur, you took made a covenant with him, and you purchased a people and you redeemed them. They're a tribe of your inheritance. They're your people. And the temple on Zion was a reminder of that. This is where you promised to meet us. And the only place on earth would be here, in in this specific place, on this specific mercy seat. Lord, those were your words. You will meet us here. You promised that. And he's saying, remember, O God, we bear your name. You possess this meeting place on earth. and We live in your land, which you established. And, and that's always the basis that you, on which you appeal to God. You don't ever appeal because you deserve it or because you're a good person. I mean, when we sin, we want to justify it or we want to blame it on somebody else. Your appeal is always based on what God promised. You say, Lord, remember Christ. You say, Lord, I, I, I know I, you would have me sin not, but it... But even though I have, look to the advocate beside me. He purchased me. He's your propitiation. And the singer says, Lord, is that relationship not not enough to cause you to act or act sooner? But if not, look at what they've done to your holy place. Look, if you would, at verse 3. He transitions to the the people and the relationship to, to, to to the temple. Step toward the irreparable or perpetual ruins. I mean, they're laying there. You can see them. The enemy has damaged everything in your sanctuary. Your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place. And Watch the change here. They, from your to they, they have set up their own signs as signs. It, it seems like one bringing up his axe into a forest of trees, and now they break down all its carved work with axe and hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. They have said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. He says, look, look around. Look at what they've done. Look at what they're doing. They've roared like defiling animals in the very midst of your sanctuary where only your people and your priests should be. And when they came in, they, they took out their axes and hammers and smashed all of your precious things to the ground. One said like drunken louts, like destroying vandals. You can just get this image. And they've set up in their places where your symbols once stood, their own signs, where the altar once stood. They they have a pagan table. And where the curtain to the holy place once hung, they they have a carpet to, to dag on. They've desecrated your sanctuary. Look at it. That's what he's saying. And notice it's not just the main building, but all the meeting places in the land in verse 8. They've burned all the meeting places of God in the land. Now, frankly, I think it, it's hard sitting here as Gentiles, understanding the feeling that this psalmist is singing with, since we're not Old Testament Jews living with the temple having Sabbath or Shabbat every week and and then going to the temple and and going through the practices, being on that side of the the Mosaic Covenant to to, to really grasp the grief here, what that looks like. Maybe you could imagine what you would feel like if, let's say, you go away for Christmas and you go away to visit family, and when you return, somebody's broken into your home and they've trashed it. And maybe you didn't have Christmas with your own kids or family, and and you left those presents there, and they ripped them all up uh, open, and and they went through your private things, and you threw your stuff all over the ground, and maybe your family picture albums were 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 trampled on. There were liquor bottles everywhere, and and, and someone had even slept in your bed. Or maybe the next time you walked into Timberlake Baptist Church, this pulpit wasn't here, and there was, somebody had placed a Hindu altar right here. There's a sacrifice on it, and there's smoke of incense rising up, and there's a big Hindu statue behind it, and you walk in for Sunday morning to hear the word of God proclaimed from from this very spot. What what would you feel like? How would you feel? Well, if you can conjure up uh, uh, those emotions, uh, you might get a glimpse of what Asaph is feeling here. What he's describing is far worse because this is the trashing of the the place where God's presence dwelt on on earth. Do you remember another man who wept over the ruination of Jerusalem? Who was angry over the fact that God's enemies were defiling his his temple? Triumphal entry, Jesus starts at the top of the Mount of Olives and he ascends the colt according to Zechariah nine, 9 and, and he starts, the Mount of Olives is high, and he starts down the Kidron Valley, and then he would go up the other side of the, of the Kidron Valley and go right through the eastern gate up to the Temple Mount. And, and as he's coming down the, the hill with the celebration going on, on, on around him, he stops about halfway when, he, when he's eye-level with the temple, and he looks toward the, toward the temple, and, and he wept like Asa. He sings his own song, if you will. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children just as a hen gathers her, her chicks or her young under her wings. But but you would not. You were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. He sees Jerusalem. He stops and weeps over it. Because it's it's empty. What's supposed to be there? And it's filled with the enemies of God. He enters the temple. What does he do? When he goes into the temple, he, he cleanses it. He, he purges it. And, and he says, my house was supposed to be called a house of prayer. It's supposed to be filled with prayer and praise to God, but, but you've made it a den of thieves. And then because of that, he says, another destruction's coming in 70 A.D., doesn't he? Jesus understands this psalm. He, he wrote it. That same English theologian said, so that's what we should feel. About our churches, whenever they fall in disarray, when when they're being destroyed with empty words, or they're full of boasting preachers who allow in the drunken vandals of cultural compromise, or the, the axes of worldly philosophies, and or they're desolated by petty division. There should be weeping, and there should be there should be anger. Is that how you feel? Is that how you feel when? Governor Northard Thortham begins to lecture the church on what is worship. Feel free to listen to him on governing of the commonwealth because that's his role. But there's a boundary the doors of the church. It's God's sanctuary. No human leader defines what is worship. Only God does that. You have the Lord If the Lord, though, will not act on behalf of the sheep or on behalf of the temple, maybe He'll respond to the enemy's mocking God Himself. Look look at verse 9. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet, nor is there anyone among us who who knows how long. How long, O God, will the enemy taunt you? Notice the change there. Shall the enemy treat your name disrespectfully forever? He talks about signs here. I mean, just like a, a young lady may give her, her sweetheart a picture in a locket or a or maybe a letter, you know, to, to tuck in his jacket pocket as as he goes off to war, deploys. It's a symbol of our love. God has given Israel symbols of his love. The Ark of the Covenant, the table of of shoe bread, the golden lamp stand, and and the writer looks, but they're all gone. They're, they, we do not see our signs. They're, they're, they're not there. And he gave them so the people would have something to look at and remember his love, like like the, like the letter that that soldier would carry it around. He, he would read it over and, and over, and he would think, how long, how long before I can see her again? And, and Asaph says, God's people are to do the, do the same thing. That's the purpose of, of the temple. They go there, and they're reminded of the Lord, and... And while his people are physically separated from him, he sends his prophets to speak his words of encouragement and correction, just like that letter in the pocket. And, and they're all trashed, and they're all gone. There's no temple, there's no symbols, there are no prophets. And the silence is deafening. And it's going on and on. My grandmother bought me the first Bible that I ever owned, when I was an unsaved teenager. And I can still picture it. it. It had a little zipper that went all the way around it. And there was a little dangly cross, and you grabbed a hold of the cross and you unzipped it. and It sat dusty and silent while I indulged in sin as a young man. But after I came to Christ, I found that Bible, and I remembered her faithfulness. I remember that was a symbol of her love for me. She wanted to give me what... What she had, and I was too foolish to listen. What sign of love, temple, and all of the the things that are are part of the temple were signs of God's love for Israel. What sign of love has God shown you that you might be ever looking? Were you brought to church as a a child? This is a sign of God's love. Can you sing songs of grace by memory because they they were taught to you? I mean, you realize that every day there are people that wake up on this planet and there is a Hindu god with incense burning in their homes and they never hear the words of Christ. They never sing the songs of the faith. And you have, you have probably Bibles collecting dust in, in, in your home. Those are, those are signs of, that God loves you. Do you know the gospel story. Those things are signs. Are those signs silent now? All of them give an evidence of God's grace toward you. Don't reject them or or worse, mock them in your unbelief. Verse 10. How long, O God, will the enemy taunt you? Shall the enemy treat your name disrespectfully forever? Notice time again. How long? The song begins with, How long, O God, will you cast us off forever? And now in verse 10. How long, O God, will your enemy taunt you is the, is the enemy to revile your name forever have you ever asked that with the, with the mockers in the world will the vandals that are dancing in the sanctuary and mocking the the god it represents be able to continue forever lord how, how do you feel whenever you see that well you feel this way look at you would at verse 11 this is how you feel why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom? Take it out, destroy them. That's how you feel. When you see them mocking. Don't withdraw your hand, don't keep it in your pocket. It's the referencing of the sword hand. You know, it's it's like the gunfighter that, that just that has his hand, but he never never draws it. Take your hand out of the crease of your garment and strike them. That's what he's saying. Why, do, why are you not doing something for us? And why don't you do something about them? Why does your hand seem absent in my life? And why don't you strike your enemies down? You've felt both of them, haven't you? You've asked, where is God in your own life? And you've asked, where is God when evil temporarily triumphs? And, and when you ask those questions, you need to remind yourself of what you know, not just what you see which is the second stanza of the, the song? We sing consoled by, by, by what we know. Look if you would verse 12. Notice the transition here in verse 12. Yet, yet God is my king from old who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the, the earth, works salvation in the midst of the earth. I mean, if the psalm starts on in a minor key, it changes here in verse 12 changes key because it changes focus he moves from what he sees in the sanctuary when he looks around it's desolate and now to what he knows about about god one commentator said the things that that i grieve in verse 1 through 11 now engages the things that i believe in verses 12 through 17 and so in the second standard he, he declares who god is and what god does he is king from old in verse 12 and and He has worked salvation on the earth. He is sovereign, and He is Savior. And, and then He goes example by example of how God has done that. Uh, he's king over enemies in verse 13, over beasts and monsters in verse 14, over the flood in verse 15, and over creation in verses 16 and, and 17. If you ever have a child that's, that's scared of the dark or monsters under the bed, Psalm 74 is a great psalm to take them to and read them. Notice all the personal pronouns, you, 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 you. They're all in the emphatic position, meaning he's saying, you and you alone have accomplished these things. You alone are, are king and savior over our enemy. Like when you divided the Red Sea in verse 13. Verse 13, you divided the sea by your strength. We had our backs to the Egyptians and, and our fronts to the sea, and you divided the sea by your might. You alone. Our king and savior over beasts and monsters in verse 14. End of verse 13. You broke the heads of sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of, of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. Leviathan, the giant creature from Job 4. Which is symbolic of overwhelming power before... Which no one can stand. You alone are our king and savior over judgment, like in the flood in verse 15. You broke open springs and torrents. And when men mocked Noah about building the ark on dry land, you broke up the springs and the torrents. You made the land to float. You dried up the rivers and the seas, like, like the Jordan rest across. You alone are king and savior over creation. Verse 16, yours is the day, what we can see. Yours is also the night, what we cannot see. You prepared the light and the sun. You established the boundaries of of all things. I mean, What's he saying? He's saying even though he looks around and he sees all these things, the psalmist sees all this destruction and God's enemies triumphing, he says God still stands as king. And even if you have no place to go, With the proverbial Egyptians at at your back and the sea in front, God is able to divide the sea. And just as he commands the greatest beast ever created, and he can crush the head of of any monster, in all those times it's helpful to remember that that God is king. One writer said it's vitally important whenever you see the temple in chaos ravaged by Leviathan-type creatures that, that are much stronger and bigger than you And when you see a church ravaged by sin or bad leadership and it becomes useless because of compromise, you should remember this. It's helpful to remember in those times that that God is sovereign even over chaos. And He can bring order out of disorder. And just like He was the master over chaos in creation, He can be master over your chaos. He wants you to see it. He, He wants you to feel it. He draws the boundaries uh, with the seas where, where they can go and no farther. I mean, have you ever thought about how ridiculous it is to do what I do on a regular basis and you? I mean, what is the draw to go sit on a beach in a chair for like hours upon hours and just stare out into the, you know, into the, besides catching a tan? I mean, what's the draw? and you're sitting there you're watching the waves come in and you know there's a boundary they cannot come any farther than this. God is the one who drew the boundary. That's what he's saying and God does the same thing with evil. you remember in job? He put job in Satan's hand he gave job permission or Satan permission but he says he can go you can go no farther and just like he made the boundaries of summer and winter and spring and and fall. In verse 17, you've established all the boundaries of the earth. You've established all boundaries, Lord. You've made summer and winter. He establishes all the boundaries, including morals, ones like what's right and wrong. Not you, not me. You don't get to decide. The culture doesn't get to decide. God establishes the boundaries. And the boundaries are there even whenever the, the culture floods over top of them. That's what you need to sing whenever you look around and what you see is dark. And, and then you keep praying until God answers. Let me show you the third stanza here. This one's quicker. We sing pleading in, in what we pray. Verses 18 through 23, there's seven pleas for God to act in, in prayer. Here's verse 18. Notice the change. Remember this, O Lord? That the enemy has reviled and a, a foolish people has spurred your, your name. Remember the enemy who scoffs? Verse eighteen? Remember the vulnerable people. Look, look at how vivid of an image this is in verse nineteen. Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. It's like a helpless dove being being handed over to, to a ravenous wolf. Remember your covenant and your own promises in verse 20. Consider the covenant. The dark places of the land are full of habitations of, of violence. Verse 21, he, he says, don't let the oppressed be forgotten. Verse 22, remember how you're, you're reproached. Verse 23, don't forget the voice of your adversaries and the uproar of those who rise up against you which ascend continually. My Hebrew professor Bill Barrick said, surprisingly, this psalm does not end with, with the way it began. It doesn't end, don't forget the sheep of your pasture or remember your congregation. That's how it, how it begins. He says, don't forget your adversaries. It, it, it ends with a plea for God to execute judgment against those who have destroyed the sanctuary and, and deported the Lord's people. And while that's somewhat fulfilling, the psalm's ending is not. I mean, it's somewhat fulfilling whenever we think about justice. God, would you, bring, would you bring justice? I mean, everybody wants justice just for somebody else, not me, right? I want mercy, but I want justice for everybody else. I mean, it's somewhat fulfilling, though, and we feel unfulfilled. I mean, one of the things that Ecclesiastes said, a part of the curse, is that justice will be delayed, and it may be delayed until eternity. And yet when it comes in earth, there's a, there's a, there's a partial fulfillment there. That's somewhat fulfilling, calling for God to to judge the enemies. But, But this psalm ends without resolution. God does not reappear. There is no new understanding. The psalm, as one says, the psalm leaves us right where we started with the same questions of why and how long still on our lips. The Messiah doesn't come. And the temple is still estimate and there's still no prophets and the signs of God's love and the symbols are all gone and you say well that's a helpful song whenever I'm waiting on God but what does that have to do with Christmas well turn over to Luke chapter 2 and I'll show you Luke chapter 2 verse 25 Oh, I wish I was. I wish I was smart enough to see all these connections, with the help of others. Luke two twenty five. So for almost six hundred years, Psalm seventy four as a prayer remained on the lips of God's people without resolution. And the temple was rebuilt but they went from the Babylonians to the, to the Persians, to the Greeks, to now to the Romans, and the people were still scattered, and God's enemies still reigned, and the Messiah had not yet come until verse 25, Luke 2. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking, longing for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before God answered that prayer. Before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the, in the Spirit, into the temple. And when the parents of the child uh, brought in the child Jesus to carry him out for the custom of the law... He took him in his arms and, arms and blessed God and says, Now, Lord, notice the time references. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, the light of revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What was Simeon coming to the temple every day looking for. The same thing Psalm 74 is looking for. Consolation of Israel. And Santa, uh, uh, Simeon and Anna had sung Psalm 74 many times, no doubt, watching and, and waiting. Until the day when a couple from Nazareth showed up to dedicate a baby and the Holy Spirit revealed to them that Asaph's prayer had been answered hundreds of years later and do you recall not in this passage but right before how god begins to answer the prayer do you remember what god sends first he sends a prophet back into the land and there hasn't been any prophets and he begins to read that letter the prophet john the baptist pulls the letter of god from the pocket of the the wandering wandering israelite and he begins to read it again they're reminded and he reveals his answer to, the, to this couple through through signs of the covenant they come to the temple and they make an offering in, in the temple and that's how Simeon sees it when you look around does it look dark you see darkness in every nook and cranny Are you waiting on God to come to do something about this this cursed world I mean you see men like drunken louts, triumphing over God's church, it seems like. And do you think, how long, oh Lord? Then, then you say, well, what do I know? Do you know that Christ is sovereign and working salvation on the earth, even in the midst of all that? Uh, sovereign over his enemies, over beasts and monsters. Sovereign over the judgment, even when he brings it. Over creation itself and all the boundaries, he stops the cultural flood wherever he chooses, and allows it to flood wherever he chooses, and, and he also sets the boundaries of whatever afflicts you, and it can go no farther than what he commands. And while all of that happens, what you see and what you know, you wait on him to act, and you wait by praying. And as you wait, He shows you His love and teaches you to trust Him. And and you might cry with another psalmist. You might sing another psalm. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord for the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will. Redeem Israel from all of her iniquities. She you bow your heads. Father, as we come before you, we give you thanks for the songs that you have placed in your word. I give you thanks, Lord, that you you help us to, to understand what we're singing, but you also help us to feel it and um lord i don't know the hearts or even what's going on in in people's lives here but but no doubt there may be somebody waiting they look around and it seems desolate they seem things devastated in all different areas and and maybe they're praying for a loved one maybe maybe something who knows you do You need to point them this morning. They need to be reminded to take their eyes off of what they see and be reminded of what they believe. And then to pray while they wait. Lord, I thank you that you will redeem your people in your time. And we say even this morning, we we long for your coming, Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day in which you will reign on earth and in heaven.